people think about training the brain as intellectual pursuit. It's not, it's a physical pursuit. The brain's like your arm muscle. So how do you train the brain if you're not in a classroom? We all have the capacity, but that capacity depends on, on whether we use it or not. Hi, my name is Chris Meredith. And I'm Paul Fairweather. And welcome to The Common Creative. We're on a mission to understand and share the tools and techniques of creativity in business and the world at large. And this week's guest is an extraordinary woman, Selena Bartlett, who has spent so much of her life studying the science of the brain and what role creativity plays from a neurological point of view. Um, an amazing show which proves that a lot of the theories we've been toying with are in fact grounded in science. Yes, it's very affirming, Chris, to speak with Selena. Incredibly uh, inspirational, the work that she's done. Uh, in particular, a study she talked about that's just been released about how different areas of different people's brains light up when they work in a state of flow as a group. So really fantastic stuff. The link for that will be in the notes below. Uh, well worth checking out. But Selena Bartlett also will put her contact details in the end. But uh, a great conversation. So let's get Selena um, on air. Yep, let's chat to Selena. Selena Bartlett, welcome to the Common Creative Podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. Great pleasure to have you with us today. Uh, Selena, we, I know we're going to talk about neuroscience and creativity, but you confess you've just jumped out of the ocean just now. What draws you to the ocean? Um, because there's nothing better um, for so many aspects around how men, what I now know about how the brain works. Um, outside the cold, um, you're surrounded by nature and salt and animals, and there's nothing better than being surrounded by nature. And as I do a lot of teaching in these spaces around helping people understand how their brain works, it sets your brain up for the day. So it allows you to start to see all the good things. Um, and it really changes the neurochemical structure of your brain and the physical structure as well. So I think a lot of people, I'm a fellow ocean swimmer. I've swum this very morning. Um, a lot of people kind of instinctively know it makes them feel good and but I think the non-people who don't do it assume it's a sort of romantic interpretation of what they do. But you're saying there's real neuroscience. There's yes. some, yep. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so um, it really started back, oh, it's been going for a long time, and I can't, and people will probably write mm -hmm. into you and say, oh, this was invented thousands of years ago, and it may have been. So I can only tell you about the stuff I know, and that's the Wim Hof method. So Wim mm -hmm. Hof is a Dutch... Um, a Dutch Netherlands guy that his, I don't know how far we can go down this story, but um, basically he went, his, his wife died, jumped out of their window and left him with four children. And he ended up clinically, she was depressed. He ended up really depressed. And so he went on a search to find out how to overcome this, like everywhere around the world. And then one day, for some reason, he jumped in an icy lake and his whole brain cleared in that moment. He ended up developing a method called the Wim Hof method, which is ice baths 
breathing techniques and conscious control of his brain. He set 26 world records. He can swim under ice sheets for 60 meters. He can sit in ice for two hours. And people thought he was a circus act. So he went on a scientific journey to prove and wonder what had happened in his brain. He's now trained 40,000 plus people around the world. And he's also, his method has been published in scientific papers. So what's happening from a neuroscience perspective, he's had his brain imaged. He can consciously control his body temperature. But what they end up showing was he actually retrained his brainstem, which is the part that comes out of your spinal cord going up into the top part of your brain. And that's the part of the brain that we teach in school and uni as the autonomic nervous system. That means your breathing, your heart rate, as if you can control that. It's autonomic, automatic, meaning there's no conscious control over that. Well, he demonstrated that was completely incorrect. And that's now widely known. And it's it's just common understanding. It still hasn't changed in the tech book, textbooks. We still call it the autonomic nervous system. Um, so with that technique, I went and did the same thing and followed his methods. And, um, and when I'm teaching this, the idea is for many things. One is to show people just how untapped their brain potential is. Two, to realize there's a lot we don't understand about the brain. And the thing that I've learned about studying the brain for 30 years or more now is that the brain is really untapped. It's not that we only use 10%. It's just that the bits that are untapped have to be pushed out to be used. And this is what you're talking about a lot on this podcast is what exactly, how do we get people to be creative? Well, it's out of the box thinking because you have to, it doesn't happen in a microsecond. It has to be trained to happen. So is there a sort of a practical application? Um, we can't, you know, ice baths, cold showers, uh, and yes, so, how, how we use that to... Um, yes, well, because why are people not creative? Well, because they're stuck. Why are they stuck? Because it's a brain mechanism. Tell me so. how many people train their brain every morning when they wake up. So they think jumping in the ocean is for certain types of people. They think this, like people doing meditation is... No, they're training their brain. So we have to start thinking about and teaching people how the brain works. So people can't see it, so they don't know that. So it's fascinating that because um, the place that we imagine our brains get trained is in the classroom, the schools, universities, I go on courses. That's where I get new stuff in my brain. And you're suggesting there are many, there are different places and different methods for training the brain, especially the autonomic, if I got that right, that, that bit of the brain. So how do you train the brain if you're not in a classroom? Oh, so every day, so people listening to your podcast are training their brain because they're listening to new material. So, so let me just tell you that the, for the first time in history, I have to step back and give you the high-level version here because people think about training the brain as intellectual pursuit. It's not. It's a physical pursuit. The brain's like your arm muscle. And if it's not being trained, then it weakens over your lifespan. So, so first of all, we have to get to the understanding the brain's a 3D organic, 4D, 5D device. And it's organic muscle, like it's an organic material. It's not just what you shove into it. It's also how it's been functioning from what you're eating, um, how you're exercising, etc. There's many ingredients, how much you sleep. We could go into all of those things everyone talks about wellness. But I think of the brain like a muscle. 
And we've attached ourselves to the brain so much that that bit is missing. So without having the brain prepared for growing and being thriving and healthy, then we can't learn properly. We can't be creative. We can't do all these things because there's many, many reasons for that. So what's changed to bring us to this understanding in 8,000 years of history is the tools and technology have massively advanced in the last five to 10 years in terms of our capacity to actually visualize the brain in three dimensions for the first time in history. We can actually see inside the brain. And so these things that people have made up about the brain over all these 8,000 years are now knowledge. <laughs> so once you get knowledge, you can't change that fact that's now entered into your understanding. Whereas in the past, people have made up a lot of stuff by looking at behavior. Behavior doesn't tell a story. It just tells you something that people have inherited. So are there any, I think there have been a lot of um, theories about learning about the brain and so on that have been developed based empirically or perhaps just based on hocus pocus sometimes and you're saying now we've transitioned into a phase where we can we can get hard data about the brain and so on are absolutely. there any miss absolutely so what what if you look back over what did we get right what did the hocus pocus kind of go yeah actually that was spot on that is i would, true. I would and, never call it um hocus pocus i call it we build on the shoulders of giants okay Okay. So once upon it, we really do, um, and no one's ever a brilliant expert ever. They're always, and every, creativity builds on, every one of us are building on the shoulders of giants. And so that's why all of us, like three of us here working together, come up with a better idea than us being separated. So where we went right, in my opinion, at some level, and I would never call it hocus pocus, um, would be the Buddhas and the Lao Tzu's of the world um, back in, you know, really early times and and stuff we probably need, never seen recorded. The Indigenous uh, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islanders and others that have existed with the earth over 60,000 years of history, I would say some of them understand not necessarily the scientific principles but understand what it takes to stay healthy, happy and strong over a lifetime to maintain and work uh, with nature to sustain civilization over a long period of time. So in terms of brain training, Buddha um, understood it um, and many of these other monks, because we've now imaged their, not me personally, but labs have imaged yeah. their brains to show expansions in the insular cortex and prefrontal cortex and, and changes in other parts of their brain that allow them to be calm and not react and be able to just let motion, they call it letting motions flow through. And then there are other people that have latched onto those ideas um, that people follow, like um, uh, what's his name? Uh, the now power of now. Um, Eckhart Tolle. Eckhart Tolle and all of these other people that have latched onto the same ideas of not being attached to anything. Well, what they're doing is training their brain. So the beauty of science matching up to these old principles that have been around for a long time is that people don't necessarily have to sit on mountains and meditate for 40,000 hours to work out how to jump in a cold ocean and train parts of their brain. So I would identify the science meeting these really old wisdoms that have helped people for generations to speed it up and catalyze things. And I think that's what Uber did for accommodation, uh, for transport and Airbnb has done for accommodation. It's democratizing people's capacity to earn money or to leverage some of their own personal assets. Um, I think that's where we're up to with the brain. It needs to be democratized um, so that people can all be happy, healthy and strong. Selena, I, I have a question. Uh, Chris and I are both of the very strong belief that we're, that everyone is creative. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I suppose as Bano Brown, I think, said, we're all creative, just some people use it and some people don't. Um, uh, I, w- I would disagree with use it or they don't. I think people have different capacities based on their brain architecture and it can all you can get it, but you need to train it depending on what you're born with because many right. people are born with a lot of adversity that impacts their brain architecture's capacity necessarily. Like I, I don't believe in willpower. I believe in brain power. Right. So you're, you're saying that basically, but we all have the capacity, but that capacity depends on, on whether we use it or not, but also a little bit genetic or what we're born with. Is that Well, what? we now know you inherit your brain over many generations. So you've heard a lot about genetics being your blueprint, your hardware. You've heard a lot about epigenetics, which is the way the hardware gets shaped by your experiences. Well, we now know through science is the advent of things called microRNAs and histone modifications, meaning that down the sperm line, you can inherit maybe necessarily they haven't proved it in humans yet, but that they have in every other species, you inherit memories going back three generations and how you put experiences into your brain now can be passed on to three subsequent generations. So you're not born a blank slate. Mm. You're coming in with um, previous stories because <laughs> we storytell and we, and we have those stories built into our memory banks. And so to undo those stories and start a new story in your life takes a lot of uh, courage and people think that we're so we're not born the same way is what i'm saying so when people say yes we're all creative but yes but if you can't eat and sleep and shelter and you're from a refugee camp yes some of those come on to be creative but that's because in those refugee camps their family structure is really strong so they get a lot of loving support for their brain others are being abused so you can see immediately just in that one little story there we don't have the same brain starting points but you can all get there but it takes a fundamental shift in society and systemic shifts to understand this. And I think this is the beauty of science is elevating our conversations to brain health and fitness away from mental health and illness. And I think that's a massive shift. And, and that's kind of, I guess, why I created uh, you know, the, my podcast, The Thriving Minds, and um, many other things <laughs> to try since, and bring this to and talk well, to you, <laughs> to bring it to since people. Since we're... we're- we're all podcasters then on, on this session. Give yourself a quick plug. Where can people find The Thriving Minds? How often does it come out? Just tell uh, us. So us I'm, I'm probably a little bit less organised than you because I'm also running a research lab and you know, mapping the brain and, and doing other programs. But it's called The Thriving Minds Podcast and it's on all platforms. And the idea is, and I'm going to put your podcast on mine as well To and the idea is to spread in a easy way, simple techniques like you just asked me, say you just jumped in the ocean, why those little techniques anyone can access. But they but that's the beauty of this platform is us being able to descent, you know, to bring this out to people in a way that's the change in society. So thriving minds. And I also have a website called Prof Selena S-E-L-E-N-A Bartlett B-A-R-T-L-E-T-T.com where I have my books and my latest papers and the latest advances in neuroscience, to be honest. So the advances in neuroscience are outstripping our knowledge and, and our textbooks and our training manuals. And um, uh, you, you mentioned those three words, healthy, happy, and strong. Yes. It's kind of, it sounds like foundation stones of what we should be striving for. Yes. What role does creativity play in there? Is, is being creative a, a feeder into a sense of happiness? Um, and if so, tell us how important is it? 
Absolutely. You cannot be creative if you're sad, depressed, unhealthy, eating well, not well, and not sleeping. It's very hard to be creative in a different way. I mean, you can be like some people are. They they might be in a band and they stay up all night and they're jamming together um, and they get a flow state doing that. I'm not talking about something like that. I'm talking about if if you're feeling really bad about yourself, if you're then overeating or drinking or medicating this stress that you have, it, it, it really shuts down the physical structure of your brain. So up here where um, creativity, like creativity is using your whole brain. It's the what I call spherical thinking or spherical feeling. It's, it's utilizing all of your brain in different ways. And also working with other people generates even better creativity, as you know. That's why storytelling works so well. Um, so if you're not, if you're feeling, let's go the opposite, unhealthy, unhappy, and feeling like there's no point to anything, it's it's difficult to be creative. Whereas you can go and jump in the ocean and start small like that and have a really good morning routine and just build slowly. And then you'll find that you want to help other people. It's not just about yourself. You start to look out from yourself. So I believe creativity is is wanting to help other people, not just yourself. Mm. And, wow, and that only comes... Selena, I, I, was, I was just... Um... Uh, just a, a question sort of around that and we were talking earlier before we started the interview about ted and you know ted's obviously you know put a big message out in the world but you were you you had a great observation about how they hacked uh hacked the mind in in the way they presented that yeah and and i think if you go back and look at the history of how it got established because it was around before but then there was this formula that the original founder i think his name's chris i can't remember his last name at the moment uh, the original founder was uh paul uh, saul Saul Warman. But there was another guy that came, Chris. Chris Anderson is the Chris Anderson. He transformed it into the global phenomenon now is because he worked out this formula in terms of what people have the capacity to stay paying attention to. So the original formula was 17 minutes. And so then it's now shorter now because our our attention spans keep diminishing because the technology with Snapchat and social media um, means that people won't even pay attention for more than five minutes anymore. Um, But the original formula back in the early 2000s was 17 minutes and plus the red um, imagery um, really hacks into how the brain, what it pays attention to. So as soon as you've got someone's attention, which is the front part of the brain, with that red and the short time frame and the storytelling, because we're tribal, built over long history, that storytelling brings people into the... So everyone tells a story that people can then emotionally connect to, and then it's the big idea. And the, and there's a cadence to the presentations that they're very well structured and worked out. I've seen a TED talk of how they've done that as well. So it's just very clever, it's just like how Facebook learnt to hack into our brain as well. That's uh, Look, I, I love that summation. In fact, uh, we might get you on to promote our new course that we're coming out, new program about ideas and stories that matter, uh, powerful presentations. But um, And you said that you've watched uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of TED Talks. There's one that, if you know of, uh, Yuri Hasson, uh, who's a neuroscientist, and he talks about how when we tell a story, how it's actually what's happening in our brain is replicated in the person that's listening. Yes. Um, have you sort of experienced yes, or that, that, that just got published this week, the brain region. Right. So what they've, what they've demonstrated... Um, 
and you probably experience this together and other people do in groups. It's the, what they like to call meta-thinking. Um, so what happens is they've demonstrated just now and published, and I'm happy to share the paper with you, showing that when a group is working together and they enter a team flow state, which musicians and symphony and, and team sports people work recognise, there's a completely different brain region lit up in each of the brains of the people in that team flow state. Completely different brain region lit up. So you actually by but you've got to be in team flow. But if there's one member of that team that knocks it down, so no one's really getting into that flow state because one person's dominating or one person's under threat or you know, that flow state doesn't exist. And so team sports in flow know this peak experience. And you've probably had these peak experiences too, where you, all of a sudden you create something out of a conversation. So you've created something that didn't exist through the sum of the parts before. Yeah. So that's where I get to the spherical thinking because the sphere, if you if you break it up into its individual planes and each person has a plane, but when you put it together, all of a sudden now you have a beautiful sphere. So, so what you're saying, because Yuri, what Yuri Hassan says is that if you're just telling a story, then it's, you know, it's replicated, but you're saying in a group, it's actually each person's brain's different. And so it's creating this sort of almost network of using, you know, a, a, a larger area of the brain in different people. Well, you get it, you're actually getting activation of a completely new brain area that's not activated before by being in that team flow state in each of those brains. Wow. A completely new brain state exists yeah. that you won't have on your own. Mm, so they haven't worked out the exact physical connections as, as to what that leads to, um, but the but that gives you a peak experience. So that's where operating together generates a completely new thought than if you were on your own. Mm. So therefore working in teams probably, it, but I mean, it, it's not just, you can't just work in a team and hope you're going to create it. Mm. You've, you've got to create a team where the team is flowing mm. together to get that thing to happen um, at a better level. And I think storytelling allows people to feel safe. Yeah. Um, do you think, um, you know, given our last year and a half in COVID, uh, you know, do you think that, you know, us meeting virtually uh, has impacted at all in that or you think it's, it's, it's equally possible to gain that state whether you're in the same room or on the same screen? Um, I think it de really depends on what the um, what's happening. Right. So, and I, I think the jury's out on that. I'm sure someone's going to un try and work out an experiment to test that hypothesis about uh, being in person versus online. Um, one thing I noticed, uh, one, it's definitely democratised the workplace um, in the sense that it's, it's given horizontal flow to workplaces. Yep. We, we, we can actually, um, we can be your guinea pigs because Chris and I have never met physically uh, face to face because um, we met just at the start of COVID. So he's in Sydney and I'm in Brisbane. So, um, and we've come up with some pretty good ideas, but when we finally meet, we'll let you know if we come up, any, if any, we come up with any better ones. Yeah. yeah, that's a great experiment actually um, yes but unusual yeah it's a strong bond that's never happened face to face it's happened online yeah yeah well, i have many examples of working online now where i've never met anyone um in person we're running a whole you know, 50 person course but the thing is um what I want to say is one thing that I was shocked to learn because I used to always give in-person presentations 
and always thought that was really important. One thing I've learned um, that my partner and I, when we did this together and online, we actually, interestingly, we could actually interact better in a group of people for certain aspects of it that where in a group, people might be afraid to speak up or they don't like speaking up, but they're, but they're happy to enter something in chat, whether it was a question or they'd, or they'd stimulate a conversation that they would feel threatened to do in person in front of their colleagues. So that that was an interesting thing I didn't expect to arise from being online. Um, they go they don't show themselves on face on video, but 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 using that chat function, we could actually say their name and say, what a great idea. Thank you for contributing that to the conversation. And we could generate a really democratized um, I think session that is harder to do in person. It's harder to get to know that in person. So I thought that was an interesting observation that I saw, but I don't know anything about the neuroscience behind that. I'd certainly agree with your observation. Uh, the, the dominant characters find it much harder to dominate when it's online. When physically we each occupy the same portion of the screen um, and our face the same size. And it's much easier for a, a host or a facilitator to, to say, oh, I haven't heard from that person and to not get started. I, I agree completely with that. Yeah, yeah, so that that was really useful. I still think there's a lot of value being one-on-one -on -one meeting people in person because um, they'll be able to tell you a lot more quickly more quickly that they won't put in chat in front of a lot of people. Or, but then I've I'll done one-on-one. -on -one. A theory I heard, it, this is the hairdresser's theory of neuroscience, um, <laughs> which is that the reason, the reason people often have very close relationships with hairdressers is that they sit in the chair during the haircut, and, and they're not actually talking to the hairdressers, they're actually talking to themselves. <laughs> and of course, I, I can see a picture of me on the screen. So maybe I'm happy to reveal things because there's this lovely guy out there called Chris, and that's who I'm talking to. <laughs> <laughs> that would not surprise me. That's a pretty good theory, actually. Which is why people like stories as well. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. You said stories make people feel safe. Why is that? Um, because it's a gentler way of coming into something. It's not threatening. It's stories tend to involve whole groups. Um, you can uh, so if music um, does the same thing. So as you, if you know about how the brain works, the more you can make the brain calm uh -huh. in terms of the old circuitry from evolution, which I don't know if anyone's seen the cats and cucumber video in your audience, but basically that same circuitry where the cat's jumping away oh, yeah. from the cucumber, that we have the same circuitry in our brain. So a lot of things that work, whether it's storytelling, music, or people doing art therapy or whatever, it just has this amazing capacity to calm people and they can't be creative until they're really feeling safe. So th that has huge implications for our audience, business people. As I, I grew up in a, a sort of testosterone-filled business environment where it's about power, aggression, analysis, and and the you know being dominant in some way. And stress is, in a way, it's good. Come on, we've got to hit this deadline. You know, we've got to focus on this massive whatever it is. So what you're saying is that is the antithesis of what you need if you're looking for a creative output. That's fascinating. Absolutely Well, fascinating. I think the power-filled statistics-driven data analysis is important at some, as, for a certain part of the business, right, to, 
to you need to know all of that. On the other side is then, which is great, but on the other side, as soon as you end up in a tunnel, if that's the only way you think you're going to survive, then Uber comes in. <laughs> so you dominate with the, the taxi medallion or you dominate with uh, whatever it is, like in a university setting, you're dominating with, oh, well, we have our local students, um, you name it, um, in terms of when you get, for me personally, when as a neuroscientist, I was medically trained, I was developing drugs. I thought that was the only way. And I became very much in a lane way, very much. And for me to shift my mind, to become creative, to think outside the box and take in new ideas was quite difficult. But I did it because I got lucky and got, and I've been studying the brain and I started jumping in oceans and doing ice baths and running up hills and all sorts of things to completely change my mind about how wrong I was. But you can see how why people get, why they get blindsided by new outside the box solutions to the things that they're solving that and it'll be and they'll be saying oh how could he how could a 23 year old do that <laughs> you know what i mean I'll, but the, for the 23 year old was no brainer <laughs> if you know what i mean it's not about age i'm not being ageist i'm just saying that and that it could be a 90 year old that does it but it's yes. just that when we get in our our laneways from a brain perspective the brain likes doing the same thing over and over and over again and that's what aging is unless you keep mixing it up um, I think, is it is it Donald Heb Heb's law about neurons that fire yeah, together so, and wire together? And- so Hebby and synapses. So this is the other thing I teach about now too. Is that that was great and it served a great purpose. And yes, um, we what learn by reinforcing and repetition. But the but their latest advance is us being able to map in three dimensions for the first time in history. So the Allen Institute, funded by Paul Allen, just put out um, a bunch of studies showing in 3D, mapping the brain in three dimensions, demonstrating um, that one part of the brain at the top ex- expanded its, its neural networks across the top of the brain, but also down to the spinal cord, reaching far longer than they ever thought in history. Hence why you have sensory motor integration and why Formula One drivers do extensive brain training, why uh, Michael Jordan, you know, these people understand at Wim Hof, they understand what it takes to do holistic training. Um, so anyway, it's just occurred to me something, you know, there's always that saying that, you know, to use a computer, you don't have to know what's going on in the, in the box. Um, but it appears, you know, what you're saying is that a long time we've sort of said, well, we don't know what's going on up there, so it doesn't matter. We just use it. But you're saying that the more we learn about what's happening there, the more, the better we can use it uh, and the, the, the more we can get out of it. Absolutely. Knowledge becomes facts, but to turn facts into understanding takes translation and practice. Mm-hmm. So um, the reason why, yes, everyone has the possibility of being creative, creating this podcast is a creative enterprise and we have to stay up with it that it and not pretend that it doesn't matter or we, we don't need to be part of this economy because that's for young people. That's just not true. Um, it's just like back in the day, you know, everyone thinks it's never going to be changed, but things change and you have to stay up with it. So mm. the same for the brain. Like in, for 8,000 years, people didn't think they they thought it was rocket science or for someone else. I say brain health is everyone's business. Mm. But that is fantastic. And look, that's um, a good time to to pull it up. We're, we're, at our, we're at our time, unfortunately. I'm sure we could talk for hours. You Maybe did. we can uh, get you back at some other stage for a part two because there's lots of questions that I still had. Uh, Selena, that has just been uh, so fantastic. I, I think you're the smartest person we've ever had on the show. So, uh, <laughs> I don't. I have to say, I don't think that. I know it. And I'm absolutely <laughs> sure you're the smartest person we've ever had. Thank you so much. <laughs> 
Oh, thank you. Well, what an amazing group of insights about the human brain and creativity. I think we've all got to learn to access new parts of our brain. Personally, I'm going to carry on swimming in the ocean each morning. It's great to hear that that is helpful for supercharging your creativity. So, Chris, unfortunately, I don't live near the ocean, so I'll have to just stick with the cold showers. <laughs> but Selena was absolutely amazing. Um, as you know, we limit our episodes to about half an hour to make them accessible to people. But I've got to tell you, I personally could have kept on talking to Selena for hours and hours. She is absolutely fascinating. Uh, a Brisbane girl, born and bred, and has spent most of her life in the States, but now is back in Brisbane and a great treasure for us to have. Well, maybe we should get her back on again when we have our next season. Um, if you're interested to find out more about Selena, she has her own podcast. It's called Thriving Minds. We'll put a link in the show notes of this episode. And we have a little plug for something that we're doing. Paul, tell everybody, what are we up to? So Chris and I have launched a program called Ideas and Stories That Matter, how about, how, about how to inspire, engage, and connect with your audience. And as you'd expect, it's full of creative thinking too. But if you want your presentations to make a bigger splash in the world of work, join us on Ideas and Stories That Matter. Yeah, and it's, Chris, it's not just about presentations, it's for keynotes, major speeches, uh, pitches, interviews, or even just to spice up meetings. Yeah, yeah, just sharing. If you want to share your genius with the people around you, our course is the answer. <laughs> and we believe it really is uh, quite unique in the approach that we've taken. So please join us. The details for how to find out about how it's being offered will be in the show notes below. See you for next week's show. See you next week.